Well, good morning. My name is Nick Runlett. I'm one of the pastors here at CCF. And as Pastor Eric mentioned the last several weeks, I think at least the last two, he is now on sabbatical for the summer. So a lot's about to change. Just want to tell you that. I'm just kidding. Uh, we are going to actually change what we're preaching through, though. That is the one thing we will change. We're going to uh, take a break from Luke this morning. Um, continue to pray for Pastor Eric and his family as they enjoy uh, these next couple months together in an intentional way. And they'll be joining us on Sundays as well. But we are looking forward to spending the next four weeks studying a few of the one another passages together and really considering our role as the church in the lives of one another. What does it look like for us to live together as the church? And there are quite a few one another commands we could have landed on. Uh, We've decided on four, and we could have spent uh, several weeks after that speaking to more, but we, we pray that the four that we've selected are helpful reminders to each of us as we seek to live like the church. And these one another commands as we start, I just want to remind you that they are commands. These things are commands we've been given as the, the church of Christ. They're imperatives. It's charged to us. But I pray that we don't miss the truth that these commands are rooted in. They flow out of gospel truth. The gospel reality that has changed us helps us to love one another, as we'll talk about this morning, differently. So we're going to get started, as I mentioned, with what could be described as the foundational one another. That is the command to love one another. So let me begin with a story of some local church drama that I shared in our counseling class last Sunday, so I apologize if you were in that class. But let me be clear, as I, before I read this, that this is not a story from CCF. I'm not passive-aggressively trying to point out some things here in the life of our church. Tom and Nancy Gardner had been troubled for over two years about the poor landscaping in front of the church. Several bushes had died, leaving unsightly gaps, and the flower beds were trampled and disorganized. Then the deacons told the gardeners that Margaret, a member of the church, had donated $200 to help pay for new landscaping. Tom and Nancy planned a new landscaping layout, ordered all the plants and materials, and recruited some high school students to help them with the work. The night before they were to put in the new plants, Dan, one of the deacons, called the gardeners to tell them that Margaret was very upset she had been left out of their planning. She had her own ideas about what kind of plants to use, and she had told the deacons that she could get substantial discounts through a relative at a local greenhouse. When Tom called Margaret to clear up the problem, she was rude and sarcastic. The more he tried to reason with her, the more irritated she became. Tom lost his temper, spoke sharply to her, at which point she hung up on him. When Margaret met with her Bible study group the next morning, she asked, can we please pray for Tom Gardner? He really needs help with his temper and his desire to control other people. Someone asked her what prompted her request. She gave a lengthy description of the situation. A couple of friends sympathized with her and alluded to similar encounters with Tom. One of the women, Sally, felt very uncomfortable about the discussion, but she hated to get involved in conflict, so she decided to keep quiet. Besides, she thought, this will probably blow over. Karen, another woman in the group, told a friend, Sid, about the problem, however, and Sid passed that information back to Tom. Tom and Nancy were so furious that they called Pastor Smith together on speakerphone. 
demanding that he confront Margaret for her malicious slander. When he seemed hesitant to come to their defense, some of their past frustrations towards him boiled over. They said, you've never been willing to stand up to people like Margaret. I guess we'd better find a church where the pastor has some courage. With that, they hung up on Pastor Smith. What a mess, right? But I think it's easy for us as the church to brush this off as kind of some bizarre example of lacking love for one another within the church. Or something that would only happened in the 90s in a small country church. That only happens there. But I fear that although the circumstances may vary drastically, the underlying heart and attitude struggles we can have with one another, toward one another, can often be more similar to this account than we would like to admit. Far lesser things have created massive disunity and separation within the life of the church. We are all prone to love our ideas, our comfort, our control, our rightness in a situation more than we love the person on the other side of that conversation. More than we love the idea of looking out for the interest of others. Jesus in John 13 speaks into both the most extreme situations and the most ordinary mundane circumstance with a command that should be a defining mark of the church. Love. So let's look again at John 13. It's two short verses, so I want to read it again this morning. Verse 34 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. For the most part, the meaning of that text, pretty straightforward. Right? Even underlined behind me, you can see love one another three times within two short verses. So the fact that Jesus wants his followers to love one another is clear. And I think the context of this passage, as it normally is, is really helpful in understanding the weight of what Jesus is actually saying here. If you were here last week, actually what was taught from Luke flows right into this passage in John. It was unplanned, but worked out really well as Jesus predicts his betrayal. Right before this text, he's washing the feet of the one who would betray him. He's washing the feet of the one who would deny him three times. And as he walks towards the cross, some of the parting words to his disciples come in the form of this command. It's it's a command sandwiched between betrayal, prediction of betrayal, and denial right after this. Those he had invested in most, those he had walked alongside the longest and poured into, despite all this, they turn against him. And despite all this, he would show that greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friends. John 15. In these words from Jesus in John 13, I want to point out three reasons we are to love one another. And I think it's very clear from the text. You could have drawn these points from John 13. First, we love one another because Jesus commands it. The reason we hated the most is kids, right? Because I said so. <laughs> However, I think the longer I'm a parent, the more I realize that sometimes that's actually a good enough answer. 
but especially when it comes from the mouth of God. Jesus gives a command to his followers. He tells them to do something. As I'm leaving, this is what you need to do. This is what your life needs to look like. It's what he calls a new commandment. It's a familiar command to all of us in this room, most likely. Yet I don't think that negates our need to hear it again this morning. D.A. Carson wrote, The new commandment is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another. The command to love is not new. If you read the Old Testament, if you read throughout the New Testament, it's not a new command to love. What makes the commandment new is this attachment of an example like, unlike any other example that they had seen before. God himself had taken on flesh and shown them the ultimate example of loving others. And we get a little jaded to the term love. It's, it's thrown around a lot. In our homes, in our cultures, it's, it's overused and watered down many times, included in everything to make it more accepted. Oftentimes, love is used to make uh, the impure pure, to seem pure, the perverse seem pure. Love in an unhealthy way is often just used like that, thrown on things. Not self-sacrifice, but self-indulgence. A lack of love excusing division and hate, and the label of love becoming a stamp of approval for whatever we desire. Either way, love becomes a convenient means to get what we want. We use love, we use the the term love to get what we want. And that is not at all the type of love that Jesus commands of his people. I think even within the church sometimes as we think about love or what it looks like to love one another... We can think that we are demonstrating love. We are doing enough by being smiling and friendly on a Sunday morning, which is a good thing. I hope you continue to do that. But you can find that same superficial love at almost any social gathering where people are kind and pleasant. As Jesus said in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. The love Jesus commands, the love that distinguishes us as being the children of God is the love he talks about in Luke 6. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. J.C. Ryle wrote, let us take heed that this well-known Christian grace is not merely a notion in our heads, but a practice in our lives. Of all the commands of our master, there is none which is so much talked about and so little obeyed as this. Yet if we mean anything when we profess to have charity and love toward all men, it ought to be seen in our tempers and our words, our bearing and our doing, our behavior at home and abroad, our conduct in every relation of life. Specifically, it ought to show itself forth in all our dealing with other Christians. We should regard them as brethren and sisters and delight to do anything to promote their happiness. We should abhor the idea of envy, malice, and jealousy towards a member of Christ and regard it as a downright sin. This is what our Lord meant when he told us to love one another. He commands this of his followers, of his disciples. He calls us to live in this sort of way as long as we walk this earth. 
As long as we live life together, this is what he calls us to. But what does this kind of love even look like? How do we possibly live this way as the body of Christ? Well, we love one another first because he commands it. But not only does he command it, he demonstrates it. We love one another second because Jesus has first loved us. The love Jesus calls us to, he perfectly demonstrates and then even enables us, which is just the incredible thing about this. He calls us to it, he does it, and then he enables us to do it. If we were to love one another simply because Jesus commanded it, that would be reason enough, but that's not it. He doesn't just tell us to do it. He does it himself. He sends us a spirit to help us do the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the driving motivation and model for our love. It's not a think real hard about it and then we can do it. We are motivated. We are, as we abide in, in Christ, we are called to live out this sort of love. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The verse we all know in chapter 3 of John, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This incredible love reveals our need for someone outside of ourselves to save us, to help us, to rescue us. Our dependence upon him for this. And he loves us enough not to leave us in that, to just tell us to figure it out on our own but demonstrates his steadfast love through the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. His life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, this is the ultimate example. This is what love looks like. As you and I reflect on this gospel, it should help our pride and our defensiveness to, to be stripped away. We begin to not only see ourselves as needy and hopeless apart from this truth, but we see the people around us in the same boat. They are helpless and in need of that same truth. They're not our enemies. The people in this room are not our enemies. They're not our competition. They're not an obstacle to what we want. They're not people that we have to have small talk with every Sunday morning. But people to serve and forgive and bear burdens with and sacrifice for and speak truth to, and receive encouragement from, to lay down our lives for. That's what these people are for. The love and forgiveness of Christ are reflected in the way we live with one another. In our homes, yes, but in the family of faith, yes. Jesus shows us that this type of love even interacts with those who betray us, even those who turn their back against us, even those who don't do things exactly the way we wish they would or treat us exactly the way we wish they would. Not a love that just has affection for those who love them well, but those who don't really act like they love you at all, who actually seek to do you harm. We see one example of that with Jesus later in John, in chapter 21, and the way he treats Peter after his denial. Instead of that account being a reminder about simply, don't be like Peter, don't deny Jesus, it's actually 
and an unbelievable picture of the love and mercy of our Redeemer in the life of Peter. Jesus was calling his followers, his disciples, to love in a way that goes beyond simply treating others fairly. We're to love selflessly, sacrificially, with a disregard for our good, even many, many times. B.B. Warfield put it this way, Christ was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men fail, there we will be to help uplift. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our friends. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the fibers of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. This is a, a high and a hard call. As you bind your life with others, and you recognize in that your own need for them, there's a humility the gospel brings as we bind ourselves with other people. There's, there's a pride underlying a lot of our separation from one another, our distancing from one another, because we don't really think we need it all that much, whether it's other things that crowd it out or just our lack of understanding that we need it. We are no longer meant to fly solo or in our little family unit, building a kingdom of self-protection or self-reliance. We can't rely on ourselves. We are to become people bound together with our Savior and bound together with our brothers and sisters. These are the types of things we, we try to remind ourselves every time we meet. It's not just when we study a passage that talks about loving one another. But specifically, every time we have a member meeting and we read aloud our abiding together document, we remind each other out loud as members of CCF of the commitment we have to our brothers and sisters. I want to read just a few lines from our abiding together document. It says, As we abide together by living our lives in light of the great worth of the gospel, putting on the character of Christ's likeness and loving one another through renewed minds and hearts. The Bible provides many examples of this kind of love, some of which are seeking above all things the glory of God as we work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Walking together in Christian love, exercising care and watchfulness over each other, faithfully encouraging and warning one another as occasion may require. Striving for the advancement of this church in knowledge, holiness, and obedience in accordance with Holy Scripture. Caring for one another in love and humility, remembering one another in prayer, rejoicing at each other's happiness, endeavoring for tenderness and sympathy, to bear each other's burdens and sorrows, being slow to take offense, always ready for reconciliation and grace. And for me, that's one of the highlights of our members' meeting, even though it can sound like a chant, we're all chanting together. But it's hearing one another, right, 
reciting these truths to each other, not just so we remember what's true about what God calls us to, but so that we can actually be living that out as the body of Christ because we recognize we need that. We're not okay apart from the body doing what the body is designed to do. So I want to encourage you, even this morning, to think about ways you personally love others here in your local community or ways you can love others here in your local community, first in your home, but then within this local body of Christ? Is it a sacrificial, selfless love that reflects the gospel that you have received? What does your love look like in your relationships with one another, with people in this room? Or is it self-motivated, superficial, meant to put on a performance or impress others? Is it a passive love that only acts when it costs you nothing? And I don't merely want you to just be discouraged (laughs) by this. If your love for others is not always selfless and rooted in the gospel, welcome to the club. It's not always selfless. It's not always rooted in the gospel. I would just encourage you, I, I pray this morning that you are convicted I pray that there are ways you're encouraged and ways you're convicted by this truth. And in areas where you're convicted, I don't want you to be condemned. I want you to repent and to seek to walk in greater faithfulness in this area, to to show off as you look to, to the Lord, as you love God, then you will love others better. Just as he has loved you, you also are to love one another. And I want to talk for a minute about what this can look like. There's going to be a chart on the screen that just shows what me-centered love can look like and what love can look like when it reflects this love of Christ. And I've been so helped by a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, that gives some insight to some of these things. But I want to read down that left side, and then I'll come back to the right side. When our relationships are defined by me-centered love, a love that is not a love like Christ demonstrated, we have a tendency towards self-indulgence. So our relationships are driven by what I want, not the purposes of God, but what my purposes are in that relationship. What can I get out of this relationship? How are you going to make me feel? What are you going to give me that makes this worth it? Two, we have a tendency towards deceit. We'll manipulate the truth to get what we want out of a relationship, or we will lie so that you think differently of us or a certain way of us. We have a tendency toward anger, to control the relationship by venting our anger or holding on tightly to that control. We have a tendency toward selfishness. I want to protect what I have rather than offer it to serve you. We have a tendency towards unhelpful communication. Instead of building up, we tear down. We have a tendency towards division. This temptation that you are the enemy and you're keeping me from getting what I want. We would never say that, but oftentimes it reflects that way. Right? As you're the competition, you're the enemy, and there's a division that forms in that. And lastly, we have a tendency towards an unforgiving spirit. We want other people to pay for what they did to us. We want other people to know how they hurt us. And so we don't forgive. We don't reflect the goodness of the gospel. But when our relationships, and (laughs) 
I mean, you probably checked off many of those even this week, right? I'm with you on that. But there is hope that we can reflect the love of Jesus or he would not have commanded us to do this. When our relationships are defined by Christ-like love, that self-indulgence can be a trust in the wise plan of our God in any relationship. That that relationship is not about what I can get, it's about making much of him through that relationship. The deceit can be replaced with truth. The anger can be replaced with gentleness and love and patience. We have a desire to now serve instead of be served. Instead of unhelpful words, we build up, we care for, we nurture with our words. We seek unity and reconciliation. We develop a pattern of forgiveness because we have been forgiven so much. This is what it looks like as we remember and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ and seek to live that out in our relationships with one another. This is what it looks like to love one another. Christ-like love. The type of love that loves people more than we love what they think about us. That loves people more than we fear their opinion of us. Ultimately, it's a love that loves them more than we love ourselves. That's the foundation of this. It loves God more than we love ourselves. This is the goal. This is what it looks like as we seek to abide in our Redeemer, to live this way with one another. So we love one another because Jesus commands it and because he has first loved us, it flows out of that and it's modeled by him perfectly. And finally, we love one another because it shows others that we are his. Verse 35 reads, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That night before he died, Jesus speaks of this key ingredient in our witness in John 17 says that all of them may be one, Father. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. The love of the Father expressed through the Son now lived out through his people. That's the way God set it up, to show off his love through the life and work of Jesus so that we can now show that off to a world that's watching beautiful thing that we get to be involved in and get to be a part of. Jesus said that when we love like this, the world pays attention. Loving others the way Jesus loved us is not just a good way to take care of one another, which it is, but it's also the way we live out our our mission to make disciples so that people will know that we are his and ultimately pointing back to him. The more our relationships reflect the amazing love and mercy of God, the more people will want to know. The more people want to know about the power that is working in us to maintain that type of peace and unity and love and forgiveness and mercy. What an incredible way to increase the harvest. What a wonderful way to fulfill his command in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory 
to your Father in heaven. When Jesus speaks of this love, or even the unity we mentioned in John 17, he does not expect us to agree on everything. He's calling us to love one another through our disagreements. He's calling us to overlook minor offenses, to let love overlook minor offenses that come up within the body of Christ, to confess wrong, to gently confront, and to even welcome counsel into our own lives. And just a a quick aside here is one reason that we never have to work through differences or we never have to overlook offenses or confess wrong, not because we're loving so well, but because we don't live in relationship with one another. You aren't known. It's easy for a spouse to say they never have conflict when they never see their spouse and they never have conversations with one another when they never live life with one another. It would be easy to say, yeah, we never fight. We never have problems. I love these people. But our love for Jesus compels us to do everything in our power to preserve our relationships with one another, to go out of our way to love the brethren. It's hard for many of us to even believe as we think about difficulty and friction and just the mess, again, even the, chat, the title of that book, A Mess Worth Making, the assumption is there that relationships are a mess, all of them, to some degree or another. And it's hard for us to believe sometimes that, that most disagreement and friction and conflict can actually end in reconciliation. That even deeply conflicted marriages don't have to end in divorce. But isn't this exactly the fruit that Jesus wants his disciples, a local church, to produce, to show off? So much of our our tendency, because there are so many churches around, right? If things come up, if issues surface, if conflict happens, if relationships are broken, well, that's fine. I can just find another church. I can just find another family. I can just leave this situation. But God's power and forgiveness and mercy is on display when we can live in relationship with one another and love one another through that conflict, through that difficulty, through that mess. We show off that we are his and we show off the goodness and forgiveness of our God. What a powerful testimony of the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of our God. Growing ministries and dynamic preaching can attract people to a church Jesus teaches that one of the most powerful testimonies Christians can offer for the reality of Jesus and the fact that we are his is to love one another. He doesn't say they will know by your crystal clear theological understanding. He doesn't say that they will know by your seminary degree or by your book collection or by your attendance in adult Sunday school. They will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is not an isolated occurrence when speaking of this call to love one another. I'm just going to throw a bunch of passages on the screen. We're not going to look at them. If you're a note taker, you can write some down. But I just want you to see how often this shows up from the mouth of Jesus, from the, mouth of, from the pen of John, from the pen of Peter, Paul. 
this is clear that it's not just a one-time command. This is pervasive. We love God and we love one another. But the opposite is also true. If we do not love others sacrificially, if we don't love one another during conflict, if we don't forgive those who hurt us and restore broken relationships, our witness can be profoundly damaged. When the world looks at our homes and our churches and sees the fruit of unresolved conflict, quarrels and church splits, it preaches a false gospel to those watching does not show off our status as disciples of Jesus. Does the world know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another? Diedrich Bonhoeffer says in his his little book, Life Together, that the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. And that's our hope, that's our prayer, that that we look like that. That as we grow in community and love for one another, as we serve and sacrifice and care for the needs and see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, everything else will recede between us. And there will be one thing that's primary, And we just work a little bit at that each day, right? We pray for that each day. We seek to be faithful in those ways each day. We look for the needs of those around us. We seek to love those around us. What would it look like for us as a local church to love like this? I even want you to just think a little bit about the people God has placed around you. Fellow members of this church, people that you attend CCF with, believers in your life. Because this will have practical implications for the way you think about your relationships, the way you interact in your relationships. So I want to leave you, I want to think through a few questions that I pray will just help you evaluate your love, evaluate the way you rest in and live out of the love of Christ, which is, again, always going to be imperfect but seeking to be faithful as we look to him and live in light of this gospel truth. First is just what is the goal of your relationships? As you pray about and think about the goal of the relationships you have, is it the glory of God in making him known? What do you think about when you think about why you have the relationships you do? Why you come into this room with these people and sing with these people and listen to the same preaching with these people and are involved in small groups with these people. What is the goal? To have some friendship? What is it? What is your goal? Do you look beyond your tightest circle to the needs of others? Do you see those around you as specific people that God has given you? In 2023, in Centerville, Ohio, for some reason, you are in this building with these people. And that is not an accident. This is who your church family is. You are called to love one another. How do we do that? What does that look like? What's our goal for these relationships? We've got to think intentionally about that. And and on the flip side of that too, do, do you treasure your relationships but not idolize them? We've got to be so careful. Relationships are so important. But as they become idols, they can become too important. So how do we look to the Lord and seek to love others in them? What is the goal of them? 
Second, how wide is your love for others? Are all your relationships with people from the same stage of life? Do you know people of different ages and Christian maturity? Just practically, what can you do to live with and around people that are different than you? I need older people in my life. I can't just be around 38-year-olds. That's not helpful for me. I need, you've walked through, some of you that are older than me have walked through more. You've, you've, your kids are older than my kids are. I need that. I need your wisdom. I need, look back and say, here's where we failed. Here's where we have, by the grace of God, done well. We need that from one another. And if we just kind of hide away in our circles that we're most comfortable with, it's not going to happen. We're not going to love one another well through that. So we need wide circles of love within the body of Christ. Number three, how honest is your communication with those you are called to love? Are you truly known? Are there people within the body of Christ that really know you? Obviously, everyone doesn't need to really know you, but there need to be relationships where you are known and you know others well. You can speak into their, to their struggles and their sins and you can ask good questions and you can pray for them and you can bear burdens with them and you can encourage them. Do you remind yourself of the gospel enough to be honest about those things, about sins and struggles? I think when we admit our sins and our struggles, all we're doing is saying that we actually believe the gospel's true. We need to be able to do that. We know the person sitting across from me knows I'm not perfect, or they should know that. And so I need to be honest about those things with people so they can speak into my life and pray for me. We need that. We're blind to our own sin. Fourth, do you know how to navigate through difficulty in relationships? This is the last question here. As we think about, even as I mentioned a little bit earlier, because relationships are hard, conflict is sure to come if we're living in relationship. So do we know how to walk through that well and not just separate from the relationship, not just move on to a new group of people? So are the needs of your friend more important than your fears of confronting her? Is reconciliation more important than winning an argument? Do you know how to forgive? Have you asked for forgiveness? There's lots of questions we can put with under, I'm sneaking in lots of questions here and just saying I'm giving you one, but you know, there's lots of things we could think through what this looks like for us. But God uses it so clear from the way he interacted, the way he lived, the way he led his life, the way he gave his life, and what we've been commanded, that God uses the people in our lives to change us. He uses the church to refine us. And if we don't actually know the church, if we don't actually love one another, we're missing out on the work that the Lord is, is going to do and has designed the church to do in the lives of one another. He uses the brokenness and the friction to, to bring things to surface for our good, to encourage us, to spur us on, the way we love each other as Christians says a lot about who God is to those around us. It says a lot about whose we are to those around us. What is our love saying about us as disciples? 
That could be even just a question you talk about on the ride home. If you came with other people or you just want to think on it on your own, what is, what is my love for one another saying about me as a disciple? What are some ways that this week I can seek to be more faithful to view the body of Christ the way God designed it? How can I love someone this week in an intentional, self-sacrificing way? I pray that God uses that in our church to just make us show him off even more. That's the goal, right? It's not to make us look good or look how well we love. It's really to show him off the goodness and forgiveness and love of our Redeemer. We love one another because Jesus commands it. We love one another because Jesus has first loved us. And we love one another because it shows others that we are his. I'm going to ask you to turn to John 15 and stand with me. I want to read one more passage and then we're going to sing together as we close. John 15. So just a few chapters later, verse 9 of John 15. God's word says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go, bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's respond by singing together this morning.